Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks a lot for tuning in, wherever you are, and we've got tons to get through in our time together, as ever. Uh, in a moment, a few notices. Uh, then, if it's okay with all of you, I'll reflect briefly on the epic drama being played out in Russia, uh, before moving on to the implications of the domestic theme that nothing bloody works in the UK and looking at where that will lead uh, with some precise examples, if that's okay with you. And then we will return to some of your brilliant questions, not return, all the questions are new and fresh and illuminating. So that's what we're going to do in our time together as you are baking, running or whatever. Beginning with a, a new notice. There's an emergency rock and roll politics taking place at the Hitchin Festival on July the 11th at 7.30. So any of you who kind of live in that area or nearby, please come along. Um, it's an emergency because it's going to reflect. I haven't done one. I usually do one in uh, King's Place in July, but this, I'm not doing one this year. And this will be the last one before the Edinburgh Festival, the Hitchin Festival. It's an emergency in the sense that there is so much going on. You know, uh, the by-elections will be looming, three, perhaps four by-elections, the economic crisis that I'll be talking about shortly in this podcast, and much more. But more importantly than any of that, it's uh, the event is a tribute uh, to a councillor in Hitchin, a Labour councillor, Judy Billing, who sadly died a short time ago, and uh, two of the organisers wanted a rock and roll politics evening as a tribute to Judy. Uh, and Judy, I met through rock and roll politics and the podcast and other things, and she was an incredible person. And um, so it's going to be big in that respect too. She, I remember her vividly with Judy. Uh, as some of you may know, during the lockdown, I used to do a live rock and roll politics from my bedroom uh, once a month, uh, organised via King's Place, and, and everyone could join in on the chat, you know. And I remember it started at seven o'clock each time, and at about five to seven, the first one, uh, Judy Billings' name came up on the chat, and it just said, I hope this works. And I kind of laughed because um, there was absolutely no reason why any of it should have worked. But she was fantastically engaged with all the stuff that um, the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative is involved with. Anyway, so it's a tribute to her, but it's a whole Rock and Roll Politics show, the only one in what is going to be an epic month. And then, of course... I'm at the Edinburgh Festival from Sunday, August the 13th. Uh, and you can get tickets in the link on the blurb for the podcast or elsewhere. Uh, and yeah, different show each day beginning on August the 13th. 
with a contrast to where we were when I opened at the Edinburgh Festival, opened as if I'm bloody Paul McCartney, but um, opened at the Edinburgh Festival last year with a, a political context that is utterly transformed 12 months on. Why? Anyway, and then different themes each day and different involvements from the audience and all the rest of it. So, yeah, uh, that's it for the notices. Uh, now over to Russia. Now, I say Russia. You probably picked it up somewhat tentatively because this is a fast-moving story. And podcasts need to be relatively timeless. I mean, not timeless to the point where they are removed if they are political podcasts from uh, current events. That would be bizarre. But, you know, they, they're, they're put out and then some people listen days later. Although, please, if you are listening to this and you don't subscribe, please do press that subscribe button. And then you'll get the podcast every time when it arrives. Um, and I'm in a really competitive mood on that front. God, I'm moving from Russia to me. Um, but yeah, the more the subscribe, the better, because it comes to you automatically. However, even those who subscribe don't necessarily listen uh, the moment when it arrives. So there has to be some timelessness. And yet um, <laughs> it shows with podcasts. Like all podcast people, I love the emergency podcast. I remember when Liz Truss fell. Actually, it was one of the highest listened to ones for me. I did an emergency podcast. You know, it's great fun. Yeah, right straight in there, you know. Um, but you can't do it with this. Some of the so-called rivals to our rock and roll politics cooperative put out emergency podcasts on the situation in Russia. Uh, early on Saturday afternoon and it had dated by mid-Saturday afternoon or whenever it was that the coup petered out in its rather bizarre way. So it's really difficult with fast-moving stories, especially stories where there are so many gaps that might be filled in the time before a podcast is released or whatever. So my reflections are going to be relatively timeless and uh, fully aware that this is a story of many levels, much of which to be worked out. And that's where I'll begin with my timeless observations. First of all, the media. We've talked about podcasts. All we can do is reflect timelessly. Um, forget about an emergency podcast that can date. But that also highlights the great joy of podcasts, that they can be and have to be reflective. They can't just get the hit of the latest development every hour. That you can do on a rolling news broadcast and get that adrenaline hit. Podcasts have to shine light and be reflective. That's a good thing. Um, but other media observations via the story, a depressing one. Uh, Friday, the 10 o'clock BBC News, uh, was still leading with that submarine story, even though events in Russia were beginning to unfold. Um, that submarine story should not have been a lead on the Thursday night, let alone by Friday. And I saw someone tweeting, they were leading with it again, the BBC on Sunday. There was something deeply depressing about the coverage of the submarine story. Uh, I won't go through the cliched observations, important though they are, the fact that coverage of other tragedies where, you know, like the sort of the boats 
stop the boats. That's one of my priorities, stop the boats. You know, when hundreds die, it's sometimes not the lead. Uh, this it was because it was cinematic and it turned us into voyeurs and I felt deeply uncomfortable about being put into that position. Um, but the BBC still leading with it on the Friday with all these other huge events going on shows the degree to which in a kind of naive way it's become so tabloid in its... Uh, timid calculations. Um, oh, what a sky doing. It's on the front of the mail. The mail online is still leading with it. Oh, this is what the people are interested in. Really kind of shallow calculations. Um, so that was kind of really depressing. I think also the, this extraordinary story uh, shows the limits and brilliance of Twitter and rolling news. Um, because, of course, by Saturday, maybe not the editor of the nine o'clock news, but others, we were gripped by this uh, story. And Twitter and rolling news both shed light. It kind of, oh, yeah, he's moving up the M4. That's somewhat surreal uh, kind of progress being made by the Wagnerians. Um, and each time there was a development, there was Twitter and the rolling news reporting it. But of course, the developments, as often in these so-called breaking stories, are fairly limited. And so the space, both on Twitter, but more obviously on rolling news, where every minute has to be filled, and it can't be filled with anything else when a story of this monumental significance is taking place, is full of people saying... Uh, we don't know a lot, or there are many unanswered questions. And that is the only honest analysis anyone can give, um, which kind of highlights both the brilliance and uselessness of uh, these media outlets at times of epic events where knowledge of what is actually happening is extremely limited. Um, and yet we are all, I st I'm going on all the time to see what the latest development is. And of course, there isn't always, by any means, a development. You have a, a choreography in place that is intriguing and dangerous and compelling, uh, but without constant movement. And I'm gonna, I was going to give an example of this, but I won't, because by the time you listen to this, there could have been movement uh, of some sort. What I think we do know is all grim. Um, we have an unstable nuclear power, a battle between two forms of hardline nationalism, uh, Putin's version of hardline nationalism and the Wagnerian version. Uh, remember, both sides of this conflict are united about Ukraine, the debate, or not the debate's too polite, um, the outpouring, the attempted coup on Saturday was about the method in which Russia takes over Ukraine. And uh, that that is the level of the internal potential civil war. Um, between two forms of this hardline nationalism, two forms of a view of a greater Russia. And at the moment, though I don't know the gaps as to how this happened, Putin is still in place, 
I read all the time he is much weakened, and presumably on one level he is because the spell is broken of utterly commanding authority when uh, you appear to have become so vulnerable by the actions of a bunch of mercenaries who then turned around. And by the way, what an odd statement it was when the Wagnerians did turn around late on Saturday afternoon, um, uh, fearing bloodshed. Well, what did they expect to happen if they were attempting a coup? It's all very bizarre, but I think deeply worrying and dangerous. I don't buy this idea of, oh, wow, if Putin falls, uh, it will be the collapse of all he represented, uh, and so on. Um, the other thing I think we know is this. There are advantages in terms of being able to pull levers if you're a tyrant without having to worry about democratic constraints. And Putin has pulled many levers and has remained in power well beyond the length of time democratic leaders tend to remain in power. There are disadvantages too. Uh, Putin has never been a communicator because he hasn't really had to communicate. Um, that famous speech he gave on the eve, it was a uh, televised broadcast on the eve of the war in Ukraine with its sort of weird dodgy, subjective, unreliable account of history, which went on for hours, uh, would not have gripped many Russians watching. And on Saturday, as the Wagnerians moved towards Moscow, or so he thought, uh, Putin gave another poor performance. Uh, he appeared besieged from within when all the action was happening outside, gave an angry speech and then disappeared. Um, he has not learnt the art of communication. And that is a problem in a crisis of this proportion. And as I speak, he hasn't been seen since. Whereas if you operate in democracies where you have to win elections, you have to at least try to become communicators. On the other side, I worry about the deification of President Zelensky, uh, this figure now elevated to a godlike status. Um, uh, it's very interesting, you know, about Zelensky that, um, you know, now Johnson has been sort of consigned to the dustbin. So everyone is sort of saying, how did this clown who, you know, became famous by a comed comedic appearance on Have I Got News For You rise to the very top, you know, perfectly valid question. But with President Zelensky, people say, isn't it remarkable just a short time ago he was a comedian and now he is president. There's no doubt Zelensky has shown huge courage and leadership, um, but as I say, I worry about the deification. I think that he is a more complex figure than deification allows, but there is no question he is a communicator. And uh, what he has done throughout this extreme crisis has shown the power of words and being a communicator. And, 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 and in a way, the contrast with Putin is fascinating. This mighty autocrat, this tyrant in Moscow, unable to use language as part of his ammunition. Um, he can use weapons uh, to limited effect so far in this war. 
uh, but not words, uh, whereas Zelensky is a communicator. And in this current twist, Putin needs words to explain and so on, even if his audience in Russia is largely passive to the point of weirdness um, in, in terms of what is happening in Moscow. By the way, the English electorate is pretty passive in a different context. So they're not alone in being passive about cataclysmic events. Um, but Putin is a reminder of the importance of being a political teacher in leadership. It's not a bonus for a leader to have that quality. I think it's an essential quality in a democracy, obviously. But in a way, if you're a tyrant too, you have to have that, certainly in situations like the one Putin finds himself in now. So that's it with me. I'm not going to say any more for now. Uh, we will no doubt return to this as a cooperative. You will have views and the situation will become clearer. The unknown questions will be answered. The gaps will be filled. But I'm not going to do it in a podcast where A, I don't know the answers and B, it could date within about 25 seconds. Let's move on to the UK, where, incidentally, that capacity to be a political teacher, to communicate, to make language, explain why you are doing what you are doing, is, is lacking, really, in, in Britain's main leaders at the moment. Um, and for Sunak in particular, that is a real Problem. I, I saw his interview with Laura Koonsberg on Sunday. I didn't think it was that bad, actually. Um, but it, it's interesting. It got slaughtered on Twitter and uh, Ben Elton was given a platform of the same programme to sort of just say this was a complete disaster and kind of framed it. It just shows when a leader is way behind in the polls. When he gives a perfectly decent interview, which I thought that one was for Sunak, um, it's seen as a disaster because people have decided to see someone through the prism of crisis and defeat. And therefore, even when you're any good, it looks bad. But I was away for a few days out of London last week, you know, kind of London-based journalist, part of the anti-growth coalition, metropolitan elite, and so on. Though not part of, there's a lot going on about raging centrists doing podcasts as you know, I think, um, I don't think there is such a thing as the centre ground. So if centrists are raging, it's partly about they're not really sure where they are. Not true about Brexit. Brexit has been this binding thing, linking all kinds of people. But that's not the centre ground. But anyway, uh, so anyway, this anti-growth coalition London-based podcaster uh, was out and about for a few days. And I came back absolutely sure of one thing. The anti-Tory mood is as great, if not greater, than in 1997. Uh, I kind of vividly remember 1997. Many of you will be too young to remember a thing about it. But there was, after Britain's fallout of the exchange rate mechanism, 
in September 1992, an almost immediate anti-Tory mood, fueled by internal divisions, perceptions largely unfair of sleaze, and all the rest of it. But now the context is uh, much deeper. This sense of nothing working uh, is reinforced whenever you dare to enter the so-called public realm in whatever form it takes. And I found the reactions of people dealing with the chaos of Britain very interesting because unusually in England, they are starting to make the connections. It was really interesting getting a taxi in a part of Cornwall and the taxi driver was saying, um, unsurprisingly, that no one can afford to rent, let alone buy. If they try and find somewhere to rent, they find there is nowhere. And yet the public transport is so bad, they can't afford to go to another area where accommodation might be cheaper and more available uh, to work. You know, the, the public transport, one bus an hour or something in this relatively deregulated system. And then there was a pause. And I thought, oh, maybe that's it. You know, we'll have the rant, um, but it will be disconnected from anything else. And then he said, we need an election. Um, and I kind of thought that was very interesting. The connection is made between what's happening in someone's life or people's lives and politics. Um, and that connection often is lost, um, but isn't anymore. And obviously I probed a bit more, found out the taxi driver on the whole was a Tory voter, felt completely let down by the, the Tories now. I don't know at what point he had become disillusioned, uh, but he was making a connection. And then uh, the taxi driver dropped us off at a station to get a train back to London. And the platform was packed. It was a Saturday uh, and then it was announced that Great Western Railways, uh, the train to London, uh, only half the carriages would be available. And if people had reserved seats, which of course most people do, there would be no reservations. And it was fascinating, the response on the platform, where people said, this country is in decline. It's just, there was a kind of wider extrapolation from this uh, moment. And uh, sure enough, we got on the train. It was packed, difficult even there. We were in Cornwall. I had to go all the way up to London. It stops about 55 times. And it was just ridiculous. And this had happened the other way as well, going from London to uh, Cornwall. Uh, train half the size of normal, uh, no reserve seats, even though people have paid a fortune to reserve seats and buy tickets and uh, squalid chaos. Anyway, I tried to uh, tweet uh, with uh, GWR, you know, their Twitter person who was very busy on the Saturday talking about trains to Glastonbury and all this kind of stuff and um, got no answer because they didn't dare give an answer. By the way, because of the chaos, uh, or partly because of the chaos, the train arrived late in London, and the staff, who were brilliant, who were so stressed and uh, dealing with impossible circumstances by the company they work with over which they have no control. Uh, but one of them said at the end, uh, there are at least four reasons why this train is delayed. And you just 
despair of the railways. Anyway, I kind of asked GWR on Twitter for an explanation, got no reply, tried three times, um, and then others tweeted as well. So somebody else tweeted, 1218, uh, Penzance to Paddington train Sunday, 25th of June, is four carriages short, no reservations, no separation of first and standard classes, people sharing seats, sat on floors, can't get to toilets, running late. Um, and then someone else, right, carriage I'd booked a seat on wasn't even there. Uh, nine coach train went down to five. It was like a cattle truck. I paid £135 for a first class single ticket to sit on the floor and be thrown a small bottle of water by staff from one end of the coach about two hours in of a five hour journey. Someone else wrote, same on most GWR services, trains cancelled all day, uh, packed Paddington to Swansea, but hey, only £300 a ticket return, uh, flight to Spain last week was cheaper on time and everyone had a seat. This is, uh, we, we just, we need, we must get Christian Walmart on again, the transport expert, because this is crazy. I could give other examples of the dysfunctionality experience from my little excursion away. <laughs> um, but just in those, you have implications about housing, uh, interest rates, uh, the Im impact on rented accommodation, as well as those with mortgages, um, and the hopelessness of Britain's privatised trains, the lack of accountability, the staff didn't know why the uh, capacity of a train had been halved, uh, and it happens all the time. Um, and no doubt it's being done, confident that they will get their contract renewed, because that tends to be what happens, though not, of course, always. And there was one gap missing in the dialogue. So, for example, this taxi driver said we've got to have an election. And I assume this taxi driver would vote Labour, although he didn't say it. There was no reference to Labour in any of these conversations. One of the things that slightly worried me uh, when people were dealing with the squalor of the trade and saying Britain is in terrible decline, there was no additional sentence let's hope if Labour get in, things will get better. And this, I think, is where we are at the moment. The anti-Tory mood is such that Labour, under certain circumstances, could win a landslide, um, or certainly a big majority. And yet, they, they are ghostly, really, in the dynamic at the moment, although, of course, miles ahead in the polls. But what their vision is, what Keir Starmer's vision is, is still not clear. Now, that evasiveness is partly inevitable. Um, no opposition, and certainly a Labour opposition, can give uh, too much detail away in advance because it gets destroyed by the newspapers who are still powerful and the influence of the BBC and so on. But there needs to be more. And this is, of course, a recurring theme in the podcast, but I will just give one example where I think there is a, a problem at the moment which could be addressed. And that's this. I, I read again in a column in The Times on Monday, you know, that this line about Keir Starmer, he has to be Neil Kinnock, John Smith, Tony Blair, all in one term. Now, I've heard Keir Starmer say this to me. I've heard Keir Starmer say this in interviews. This was uh, someone, an aide of Keir Starmer saying it to a columnist and so on. And I just think, no, no, he doesn't. 
he has to be the first ever Keir Starmer. So, this is the problem by seeing things with a sort of mythological version of the past. If you have to think all the time, I've got to be Neil Kinnock, reform the Labour Party, John Smith, reform the Labour Party and move it on a bit, and Tony Blair, win an election by presenting an agenda for the future. Um, you kind of become versions of them, not you. And I still think his authentic presence is not around. Now, actually, no one is authentic in public, but you have to, it's one of the ironies, you have to convey authenticity. It's, it's one of the artistry elements of politics. But if you're do, seeing things through the prism of the past, you won't be able to do it. It's also a mythological past. So, you know, Kinnock expelled militant tendency, but militant tendency were uh, infiltrating the Labour Party as a conscious strategy. That's not the same with Jeremy Corbyn, who was a Labour MP from 1983 onwards, um, or this elected mayor from the North East who hasn't been allowed to stand as a candidate next time and so on. Um, now, I know why all that's happening. It's complicated. People like Tony Blair have said to Keir Starmer, you've got to show that you've purged the left so the Tories can't say vote Labour and they'll all get in again by stealth. Um, and anyway, you have to purge them and so on. Not that Blair did um, when he, he didn't purge Jeremy Corbyn. Um, he was an MP for the same period. Of, he joined in 83 with Blair and Brown stayed on the back benches and voted against Labour most of the time, but he was there and never expelled anyway. So there's a sort of so Neil Kinnock did it and had to do it and was courageous in what he did. Uh, but as he's reflected many times since, it generated a sense of a divided Labour Party and a Labour leader addressing issues to do with his party, but not the country. Totally unfair, by the way. Uh, perception by 92, but the perception. So then, and then John Smith, he did do some uh, good things. He introduced one member, one vote. Um, quite a lot of the policy agenda, he set up the Social Justice Commission. He was the one who pledged a referendum on electoral reform, though not a fan himself. Um, and then we had the Blair era, which is um, uh, much referred to, and again, partly mythologized the 94 to 97 period. But if he kind of carries that burden around with him all the time, um, you cannot be yourself. And th this is new. This level of anti-Tory feeling is a great opportunity uh, for a Labour leader. It creates space. But I think if you just pursue the new Labour strategy of 97, which is to say this mansion, this decrepit old castle called the United Kingdom, run down by 18 years of Tory rule, is just almost beyond repair. Vote Labour and we plan to change the ashtrays. Things are so much worse now, it won't work in that way. And yet you can pick up this kind of defensiveness uh, as a part of the new Labour caution being applied now. And I just, I heard a kind of, Politicos did a, a podcast about Starmer, about his time as a lawyer, and how much free work he did for very good causes and so on. And he came across, uh, I didn't know half this stuff, as impressive and principled. 
Um, and I think we need to see a bit more of that side of it rather than him burdened by the idea he's got to be a combination of Kinnock, Smith, Blair and... And, and and surrounded by advisors from the Blair era and who fought the Liz Kendall campaign in 2015 when she came fifth in the leadership contest and who still blame Labour for not recognising the brilliance of that campaign and purging people. As, it's all kind of layered and complicated. But that if, I think you should wake up every day and say, right, uh, Kinnock did his stuff, Smith did his stuff, Blair did his stuff, that's the past. I'm the first starmer. What am I about? What am I going to do? Um, it's about this fear of saying one word that could blow this glorious poll lead. So anyway, the anti-Tory mood is deep and in places which tended to vote Tory in the past, there is a sense of despair out there about Britain at the moment. Um, you know, this the, the, the kind of people waiting for this train five carriages instead of nine or whatever it was um they were in absolute despair um but i thought it was interesting the driver saying yeah and now we need an election he was making the connection taxi driver but um he didn't say now we need a labor government it's not there yet um and it needs to be Let's now go on to your questions, and uh, they are many. I've just got to get them up. Hold on a second. Uh, while I'm doing it, uh, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com if you want to join in our never-ending uh, conversation. And there's a great uh, question, actually, from Yasmin Ali, um, who says, your most recent podcast looked at the COVID inquiry in the context of other current political events. But what of the possible longer term impact of the inquiry? The structure of the inquiry is interesting in itself. And the decision to issue interim reports as it goes along suggests that Hallett uh, wants lessons to be discussed and heeded in as timely a manner as possible. Even the decision, criticised in some quarters, not to let a sample of the families of COVID victims give oral testimony to the inquiry, suggests an ambition to make the whole exercise something more significant than an act of catharsis. Could the inquiry be shaping up to be the modern beverage report? Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting uh, uh, to put it in that kind of context. Uh, beverage, of course, had a massive impact uh, after the war, um, but it was published during the war, the Beverage Report, and largely, though not wholly, implemented by the Labour government of 1945. And this report does seem serious, and uh, as Yasmin points out, uh, they are going to publish these interim reports, so you don't have to wait 25 years for the final sort of verdict of the inquiry, by which time its political relevance has faded. And the way they are structuring it is also, I think, really interesting. Uh, I mentioned it last week, as Yasmin suggests, that you know, the, to begin uh, the interviews with Cameron and Osborne and the architects of austerity in that first phase of this long-serving Tory government, um, I think was a really intelligent thing to do. 
because everything, one of our favourite words in the cooperative is context, and everything has a background. Nothing happens by chance. And so I think it is going to be serious. Now, whether it becomes, it was, it's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Has it got the potential uh, in this period of terrible dysfunctionality in Britain to become like beverage, where uh, in a way, whoever won in 1945 would have to have addressed the proposals in beverage? Um, uh, w whether it could become as big as that. I think it will expose all sorts of things, not just the hopelessness of Johnson, uh, etc., which we all know about, but the appalling deregulated social care sector, for which, incidentally, no party is putting forward a serious proposition at the moment. Um, the lack of accountability in the NHS, who runs what, and the chaos of that, the underfunding of the NHS, will go. it will go deep. So what we then need is political will. Because after Beveridge, Beveridge I think was published in, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm just off the top of my head, it was 1942 or something like that. Uh, it was welcomed, it, of course there was a wartime coalition in place at the time, it was broadly welcomed by the Tory wing and obviously the Labour wing. Uh, Beveridge himself was a Liberal and there was a political will. People felt that there was uh, no option but to implement it uh, broadly and to create a new modern welfare state. Um, now, whether the political will is there, we've looked at, in this podcast at the a lack of political will to address social care. One of the great failures of uh, British politics over decades. And um, this inquiry itself might create the space where parties feel they have no choice but to deal with the chaos of the British state, which is what this is partly about, uh, the fracturing of it. By the way, I know that's one of the things Keir Starmer knows about, but as part of the fracturing arose from some of the policies in the New Labour era, he's he's kind of again paralysed because now he's formed this deep alliance with figures from that period. Yeah, so that's the key, Yasma. I think it will be a very thoughtful, important report, inquiry. But the political will needs to be there. And uh, so far, we see no sign of that whatsoever. And instead, it's the opposite. It's an example of short political memories. During the pandemic, Matt Hancock, Jeremy Hunt, as chair of the health committee, we've got to sort out social care, we've got to kind of connect it to the NHS, because they are in reality connected. Now, they've scrapped that social care levy, which was anyway not going to pay for social care. But I mean, it's, it's all madness at the moment. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Yasmin. Janet Scott, I listen regularly in Adelaide to the podcast, having left Britain in 1968. Long time ago, Janet. Uh, but uh, yeah, that we've got a lot of people listening in Australia. Uh, I'm fascinated and horrified by the career of Boris Johnson and his sheer effrontery. His resignation honours are an example. Does being sent to the Lords mean that they are salaried for the rest of their lives? Well, in effect, Janet, it kind of does. It's not a salary. They get an attendance allowance. So all you do is have to roll up. Some, I know some Lords' hearts sink if there's a long recess because they can't get their attendance allowance. They were thrilled when Parliament resumed in September so they could roll up and get their attendance allowance rather than wait until after the party conferences. So I think Johnson's resignation honours list and remember we're going to get Liz Trusses soon 
again, I feel sorry for Sunak about all of this. Um, if I were him, I would. He, he can't veto trust. It's having given Johnson's the go ahead. Uh, but it exposes the madness of our current system. These are legislators of some power. Uh, and Johnson's one exposed how insane that system is and very generous to the beneficiaries, that attendance allowance. Okay, Tom Bucknell. Given that inflation is lower in Europe and America, will Rishi Sunak end up asking for closer ties with Europe before the election? This is also in the context of higher immigration and the fact that the trade deal with America is at least five years away. Tom, make it 10 years away. It's not going to happen. Uh, Biden's not interested. Um, of course, if Trump wins, maybe. Uh, I mean, but, but we'll be in a wider chaos if that happens. Um, no, he can't because of the politics of the Tory party, Tom. Um, he himself, of course, is a Brexiteer, although he's never given a long speech explaining why he is so keen on Brexit and has been for many, many years. Um, so he can't. Uh, the issue is whether Labour can. David Lammy has su suggested closer ties. Uh, and I know behind the scenes there is a lot of work. Uh, to hopefully reset the relationship if there's a Labour government. But re what reset means is still vague and unclear. Uh, because if you're outside the single market and the customs union, you are very limited as to what the closeness can be like. And um, although they're working on it, things like regulatory alignment and so on, how many barriers that breaks, those barriers willingly put up by Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson. Johnson didn't know what was going on, really. He didn't read the detail. Uh, but Frosty Frost thought he was pleasing Johnson and in his own naive way thought he was giving back control, you know, this stupid, imprecise phrase. Um, so that's the question what Labour can do. And because they've ruled out single market and customs union, well, uh, it's limited. Uh, Mark Holstock, there's a lot on this actually. Uh, uh, Mark Holstock said interesting stuff about Keir Starmer having to be cautious about what he can promise. Is this likely to lose him votes? Many people will come to the conclusion that there's no point in voting Labour. Ultimately, will this force Keir Starmer to seek a coalition or another general election after a few months uh, if there's a hung parliament. Well, I still think the most likely outcome is the Labour majority and perhaps a big one because of this anti-Tory mood. And an anti-Tory mood has to coalesce around something. And the only option it has is to coalesce around Labour. Now, that in a way fuels the caution uh, because you want to maximise that anti-Tory coalition. But as I suggested last week and wrote in an article in the New Statesman, and as Mark implies, caution can be risky. There has to be a sense of big change coming. And I know it's difficult when uh, it's mediated via the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Times, who uh, some around Starmer mistakenly think could become an endorser of Labour. Um, and the Sunday Telegraph and the Daily Telegraph and the Mail on Sunday is appalling. It's a tough, tough world, media world to navigate. There has to be that sense um, of uh, big change to come. Now, Alan Evans invites uh, an intriguing uh, thing for me to reflect on. Here's a scenario for you. You have been put in charge of BBC political programming under a government no longer hostile to the BBC. What are your first three changes? Um, well, I don't know where to start with that, Alan, a whole podcast. Um, I would... Uh, 
uh, I wouldn't drop question time, but I would make the panel four and uh, not turn it into a bear pit, but make it into a much more interesting political drama. The bear pit is predictable and uninteresting. And again, you know, they all mistakenly think, oh, yeah, the people love it, big fight between so-and-so, so, the audience shouting, and, and, and they don't. Um, I would have a look at very simple thing, the duration of interviews and um, letting things breathe. Um, so you could have a return of the long-form interview um, with intelligent interviewers. Uh, I would make the composition of uh, panels uh, the key criteria to be context, depth, uh, shining light. Um, and, oh, yeah, I, I could go on and on. There would be a revolution, Alan, uh, if I got my hands on, on that. And uh, it would... Um, yeah, I think it would save the BBC, actually. I, I, maybe they should give it to me. Um, OK, thank you, Alan, for letting me fantasise for a second. Uh, now, let's go on. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, I do apologise. At the beginning of the questions last week, um, I kind of uh, two emails become merged, and I think I gave the wrong name out and so on, but I hope the essence of the uh, the email got a, got a, a across, and it's, it's an email that's being responded to. It's about how much local authority spending could be allowed as part of tra the transfer of power from the centre, and there's an interesting response coming up in a minute to that. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, oh, yeah, this is it, actually, uh, from Venetia Kane, who says uh, she's writing from a barge at Fort Augustus at the end of the Caledonian Canal. Um, oh, wow. Uh, on which I've canoed today. Well, this is this is hyperactivity, Venetia. Um, I hope you were listening to the podcast while you were canoeing. Anyway, in reference to that earlier email from last week, she said, However much delegation by central government as to how money might be spent by local or regional authorities is granted as part of this potential transfer of power under Labour, I'm pretty sure that the government will insist on keeping very tight reins on the overall amount spent by them, which of course would mean determining how much each authority might spend overall. Otherwise, the economy could or would risk growing too hot and rampant inflation could set in again. Yeah, uh, and Venetia worked in the Treasury. Uh, yeah, exactly. This thing about transferring power is always a big theme in opposition. Uh, quite often Tory opposition in the rare occasions when they're in opposition, always with Labour. Uh, but in reality, you can see already the degree to which centralisation will also play a part. And I'm sure you are right that the Treasury will set overall spending levels, because otherwise they really will lose control of, of spending. And that will limit local autonomy, inevitably. Um, but local autonomy when you have uh, fiscal rules and all the rest of it, it's almost, almost a contradiction in terms. And how Labour navigate this is going to be really interesting. Enjoy your canoeing, Venetia. Uh, Jack Taylor, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I did an interview with Martin Rosenbaum, who's written this uh, excellent book on freedom of information and how you use that uh, bit of legislation and how it all unfolded under the Blair government. Blair, of course, now regrets ever doing it. That's the last podcast if you want to catch up. Anyway, Jack's writing a book on oil, uh, nationalism uh, and British policy in Iran. 
And uh, he says, despite my pleas to the Foreign Office and lobbying MPs, uh, there's an exemption on some important files that he wants to read. Uh, As I'm sure members of the cooperative appreciate, history really matters, but our appreciation of it relies on the kind of evidence that our government continues, even 70 years later, to deny us access to. Of the key participants, British, American and Iranian, none are still with us, suggesting that historic claims around protecting agents no longer hold true. Well, Jack, I'll I'll pass that on to Martin Rosenbaum. I don't know uh, what he thinks about the constraints uh, on this material. Um, I mean, it, if you tr- I don't know whether you've sort of sought it under freedom of information or through other means, uh, but I will certainly pass it on. And your book sounds very interesting. Um, back to uh, Brexit briefly with Vi- White Van Andy, our White Van man of the rock and roll politics cooperative, Andy Davis. Uh, he was watching Question Time, which he rightly says he hardly ever watches uh, because of that all Brexit audience last uh, Thursday. And he said, Alistair Campbell had a Brexit message to Starmer on moving forward. And he quotes uh, Campbell's message. A reminder of the line I strongly urge Labour to have in their manifesto at the election. We accept the result of the referendum, but Brexit as delivered, far from working, is daily damaging the real interests and needs of the people of this country in ways large and small. Therefore, as a matter of urgency, its workings must be reviewed and, where necessary, new arrangements negotiated and put in place. Um, Andy wonders whether that is the right approach or uh, is very risky. It's interesting, I was at an event where Alistair was speaking and Rachel Reeves was there as well and Rachel was Alistair was putting this kind of view Rachel said you wouldn't have advised Tony Blair to do that in the build-up to 97 uh, in the in a sort of an equivalent period Uh, I think the only bit that they are missing doing is this it's the same with the railways you know where they uh, whisper that they will over time bring them back into public ownership by being so almost ashamed of that policy, they lose the chance to dissect the chaos of the railways under privatisation. And similarly with Brexit, uh, here was a deal done between Johnson, now discredited, who hardly read it, so I'm told, um, and Frost, who is a fool, um, unscrutinised, which has put Britain in a much weaker place on many different fronts. Now, I know people will then say to them, well, so what will you do about it? But they've got vague answers, and it's all right for now to be vague, though I would I would found a wording that would have allowed more options of closeness um, in power. But they because they don't really want to go there, uh, they lose the chance of explaining why we're in such a mess. And the why is so important in politics to make sense of your own case. And so that's what I think about it. Why have they not screamed from the roofs that this was a scandal, this negotiation between two buffoons, uh, uh, Frost and Johnson? Uh, You could easily do it now. Johnson's discredited. and People will feel disillusioned with him. And and Frost is a fool. Um, He could be easily taken apart. He's not even elected pontificating on Twitter every 10 seconds if he's a god. Um, Anyway, uh, Jason Bond says, I've just bought tickets to your Edinburgh show. Oh, see you there, Jason. We're going to have some uh, fun in Edinburgh. Yeah, maybe see (coughs) for a coffee. 
afterwards. He says, I have a question about what you and the cooperative think about lawyers moving into uh, politics, which has become much more common recently in the Labour Party. I recently dated a lawyer who was very interested in politics. I was often surprised when we would discuss politics about how differently she saw political issues to me. It made me reflect on my frustrations with Keir Starmer, uh, and I wonder whether his years as a trained lawyer as a is a factor. My ex would often see both sides of a political argument, no matter what the issue. Um, she could always argue for both sides, prioritising fairness and justice. Whereas I saw things through values and morality, which is how I see politics, with my training in political campaigning and activism. Uh, so we had similar policy positions, but uh, took a different approach to those policies. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know um, being a lawyer can be an, uh, very useful in terms of being a political teacher because it helps you to frame arguments. But what I do think, uh, Jason, about uh, Keir Starmer is his period as director of public prosecutions, where you had to be impartial and neutral, um, makes it harder for him to frame these partisan arguments in that gladiatorial arena of party politics. Um, when you've been through a phase, I, I, I was at the BBC, and you know you have to be impartial, and, and people are there. You know the the Director General is making a big thing of impartiality in inverted commas without clearly defining what it is, uh, as if it never was before. But people did strive to be impartial. When I was a political correspondent, I had no idea about the private politics of any of the political correspondents, um, and uh, but but. When you leave that arena, it, it is quite hard to acquire a different voice. And I think that is quite an important factor in understanding Keir Starmer. Look, do you know, we've been going on for, anyway, oh yeah, Jason says, see you in Edinburgh, and uh, is offering to be the cooperative's bag carrier correspondent. Well, we need one of those, Jason, you're on. You signed up. And yeah, look forward to seeing you in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, we better stop, actually. We've got some great questions. Andy Kemp about whether tax rises would be more effective than interest rate rises and fairer and uh, points out to us as uh, one of our North East Derbyshire members, uh, Lee Rowley did vote for the Privileges Committee report. Lee Rowley for new listeners is tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, but we all think he's going to be leader one of these days. Sort of. Um, yeah, good points from Laundry Joe, so-called, because he listens to the podcast about doing laundry, about the role of special advisors. We'll look back. I promise you, Joe, we'll come back to this. So many, so many questions. Uh, uh, Mike Indian, a very good point. Look, he's. I, I think he's involved in dentistry and the demand for access to NHS dentists, which is almost disappeared as a service and what that says and how much labour can commit and yeah loads of others but I, yeah we've been going a long time so thank you so much for uh, tuning in please do leave a review it makes a big difference in the way this whole thing works but only if you like it that would be hugely appreciated and yeah hope to see some of you at the Hitchin Festival on July the 11th and loads of you up in Edinburgh, where we really do have the space to make sense of it all from uh, Sunday, August the 13th. And yes, let's get together again very soon. Uh, there's a lot going on. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>